We are uh, in the, right in the middle of this series called The Queen's Gambit, where we're looking at this whole book of Esther in kind of a broad narrative sense of understanding uh, how God is a God of strategy, of stages, and sacrifice, just like the game of chess is, that it is key movements that we're seeing in this book, but also in our lives, right, where we see God work in unique ways, and sometimes he puts us in stages and moments of our life that we don't understand what's going on, but then we see something in a few moves or a few months down the road where we're like, okay, I get this. I see what you're doing in my life. I know I've experienced that so much in my life. We, we were out with some friends last night, and we were just talking through some of our history of even how we, uh, what, how Katie and I met, and then how we eventually came to the city, and just what's been going on in our lives, and it's like, as I was recounting some of those, and we were, Katie and I were kind of like tag-teaming this story, it was just a, a reminder of, wow, we, we actually used to do that. We, you know, I, I used to work for Nickelodeon like years ago, and now that helped do this and, and opened up doors. Things I never thought were true, like would have had any impact are all coming together, and God's doing that in your life too, right? There are things you may be going through right now that you have no clue why you're ha- having to go through this while you're walking through this moment as an individual, as a couple. But in a few moves, in a few months, or maybe even a few years, you're going to see how God was this incredible God of strategy and stages and putting together some incredible moves in our life. So last week, Kristen took us on a journey of how Queen Esther kind of took a stand. Uh, This amazing story where he focused on this powerful, strategic queen, that has been now a catalyst for societal change and for the repudiation of injustice. And we looked at that, but this week we're going to take a step back. We're going to go back one chapter because we've also been following what I see in this, in this book is two opposing characters who are approaching life, approaching relationships, approaching trying to accomplish things in their life in two very different ways. And right, the the first one is the guy named Mordecai. He is who we refer to as the shrewd knight. He is he's uh, Esther's cousin. He's been kind of playing some pieces and helping her even get into a position of influence. And so we're gonna we're gonna look deeper at his character today. And also this the this power hungry cunning bishop named Haman, who has kind of been the antagonist, the the evil character in this story. And while we have seen some obvious ways that they have acted differently in different situations throughout this narrative, you can tell who the good guy is and who the good and who the bad guy is. Today, I want to focus on one aspect of what's recorded here in the book, and I think it's also going to be very impactful in our lives to evaluate, and it's their words, the words that they use. Because the words that they use are very reflective, especially in this narrative story, of their character and who they are. And there's a, there's a crazy verse in Proverbs 18, 21 that says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. I mean, think about that for a minute. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Why are our words so important? Why do they have the power of life and death as mentioned in this passage? You remember the old saying, sticks and stones may what? Break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You guys remember that, hearing that? That's a lie, right? I mean, that is just a lie. The, the truth is words are powerful. They, they impact, 
their impact sticks with us longer than sometimes any physical attack that we might receive. Many of us are still impacted today by words that were spoken to us years ago, both positive and negative words. We can trace back much of our self-perspective and our self-esteem to words that we heard from our parents, our friends, our spouses, and even our children. Words carry more than just a definition. They often define who we are, how we think, and ultimately how we live in every situation of our life. Words can also be a powerful weapon, right? And while they reveal our hopes, our intentions, our characters, and our desires, they can also be used as a weapon or as a healing bomb in a relationship. They can be costly in a relationship. We can, we can use words and really damage somebody in a relationship, but the truth is there's just an abundance of words out there. There's not a scarcity of them. As damaging as they can be, they're out there everywhere. How we as individuals use our words will probably have more impact on our lives than anything else. So what I want to do today is look at the words that these two characters have used in this narrative and see what we can learn from them. As, we, as we're going to focus in in a minute on chapter 6, let's go back and look first at Mordecai's words, the words that he used. And uh, if we go back to Esther 2, uh, this was just after Esther had become queen, right? She had just been anointed queen. And in verse 22, verse 21, it says this. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting out at the king's gate doing his, uh, he was keeping up with things, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And what did he use his words for? He told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Presence of the King. So first of all, we see Mordecai's using his words, right? He hears something, he relays those words, not uh, for about something about himself, but for others. And then in Esther 3, verse 13, we see this is just after uh, the, the Jewish decree to kill all the Jewish people had been uh, revealed. Here is what Mordecai does. Mordecai then told them to reply to Esther after they had found this out. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So in these two primary recorded interactions of his words being spoken, here's what we learn about Mordecai's words. Right? First of all, Mordecai's words, they are help create protection from harm. They start provoking people to good, and they are pure in intent. So when you look back at this, in this story, you're seeing, first of all, when, when Mordecai heard something that was going to happen to somebody else, he used his words to protect. He warned. He let it be known. He didn't hear damage coming to somebody's way, and he ran from it. Or he acted like he didn't hear it. He used his words to protect others from harm. But he also provoked uh, Esther to do good. He didn't provoke her to anger, to, to evil. He provoked her. He said some pretty provoking words. If you don't do this, God's going to find another way. You may perish. So do good. He provoked 
Esther to do good. And ultimately, we see here that his words were pure in intent. It wasn't like if you do this, if you say this, good will come to you and then do this for me. We don't see that anywhere here. We don't see it in this story that Mordecai is doing in the exchange here. Do something for me. I'll, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. His words were pure and intent. So that's the picture we get of Mordecai. This, this shrewd man who has been laying groundwork to help protect his people. And he's using his words for protection, provoking the good, and their pure and intent. Now, what about Haman? Haman is the opposite of this, right? And so what about Haman's words? We, we see in Esther 3 when Haman gets angry because Mordecai would not bow to him, uh, then he gets upset. And Haman starts to use his words, not for protection, but for something very different. In verse 8, it says this, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. He's talking about the Jewish people. If it please the king, let it be decreed (coughs) that they be be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So we see right off, not only is he encouraging the king to kill somebody, he's like, I'll pay you for it. I will pay you, right? We, th- this is, when we looked at this, it was, uh, Jared walked us through this. this. This was like unprovoked, right? He just came and he's like, I want destruction for these people. But then we even see in, in Esther 5 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, this was uh, after he had been uh, invited to the banquet of Queen Esther and it was kind of his high moment, right? When he from probably had the most power, the most influence, And here's what Haman, how he uses his words. It says, Haman then recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he advanced him above all officials and all the servants of the king. So he's using his own words to praise him. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king's feet, to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I invited to her by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. (laughs) I mean, he he can't be, he had everything, but the one thing. So what is Haman's words? What are they? To me, they are destructive toward others instead of protection. They are focused on self instead of provoking others to good. And they are offensive in nature instead of pure in intent. I mean, he is, he, he is this guy who is easily offended and, and wants to offend other people. He is bringing destruction and focus only on himself into his conversations and into his words. This is where we see these two characters and how they use their words. And I love this story because they, it's very clear as we're looking at these how Mordecai's words are impacting other people. They're bringing protection. They're helping. They're provoking people to good. good. They're pure. And, and Haman is just out there sowing seeds of destruction, selfishness, building his own kingdom. Everything is about him, creating offensive times where there, there's, there's division between people. And we're going to see that there is definite outcome to the use of both of these words, that there is a consequence 
to when you do, when you choose one path or the other, and that's chapter 6. And that's where we're going to focus today and kind of this idea of how do we use, we, we have determining words in our life. The words we say are going to have determination for impact in our life and influence in our life and direction in our life. They're going to determine how our relationships go. They're going to determine how we advance in certain areas. They're going to determine our perspective. We have words that are determining all kinds of things in our life. So let's begin in in chapter 6, and we're going to see the fruit of their words. And so let's just walk through this, and we'll talk about it as we go. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 first, and this is where we're going to see where Mordecai starts to begin to get a little bit rewarded for his positive words. So this was the night after the king had had his first feast with Esther, and he couldn't sleep, it says. And it says, on that night, verse 1, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read to the king. This is basically, I can't sleep, bring me something boring. That's what he's saying here. Like, just bring me something boring that will help me go to sleep. And as it was read, it was found, written, how Mordecai, had used his words, right, had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's units who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on the king. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young man who attended him said, nothing has been done yet. Nothing. So now we're seeing the payoff, right? How many times in our life have we held on to the truth? Have we said the right thing? Have we tried to provoke people to God? Have we tried to be pure and intent and gotten zero reward for it? It happens, right? I mean, we sit there and we go, I I tried to be truthful. I said the truth. And a lot of times, I want you to see what we're seeing here. This was years later. This wasn't weeks later. This was years later that finally Mordecai's pure and protective words were going to be rewarded. So Mordecai is Remembered, and I want to tell the more you use words for truth, for protecting others with a pure heart, your reward will come. That's what you're planting. That's what you're planting. But now we're going to see the opposite habit. Haman now is going to be mistaken in verse 4 through 6. So then the king said, who is in the court? So again, get the picture here. Uh, he can't sleep. Right? The king can't sleep. So he's having this book read. This is the middle of the night. And if you remember in chapter 5, Haman and, had gotten drunk at the, uh, at the feast, and he had decided to build some gallows to go hang uh, Mordecai on. And so he hears, the king hears Haman out building these gallows in the courtyard. He's like, who's in the courtyard at this hour? And here's what he says. Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace, And he was going to come speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? So you ever done this in your life? Like you, we're talking about that first time when we've used words, we've used our right words, we've said the right thing, we've held on to truth, and it, it didn't seem to go right then, but maybe it will years later. And then I've also done this. I've, I've used harmful words. I've used, I've done selfish words, and I think I got away with it. 
I think it opened doors for me, and I'm about to realize, no, there's trouble coming. And, and this is what Haman is experiencing. The fruit of his words are about to be played out, and we can see it. We know what's coming, but he is about to be blindsided. And I just want you to hear this. When we use words like Haman's words to, to create destruction in people's lives for own selfish intent, uh, with, with offensive nature in it, there will be consequence. And it may hit you at the most surprising time. But it's coming. You can't sow seeds of destruction and it not impact you as well. So, verse 11 talks about what happened. So now Haman is going to be revealed as to who he is. So verse 11, it says, So Haman took the robes, uh, or let's skip it. Now, part, verse 7, where Mordecai is honored. So we're flipping back to Mordecai here. Mordecai is honored. Verse 7, so Haman said to the king, because he thinks he's talking about himself, right? For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, where the, king, the ones the king has worn, and that the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is to be set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man who the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, hurry, do this, right? Take the robes, great idea. Take the horse, and as you have said, and do this so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I'm like, you talk about a slap in the face, right? I mean, this guy is like, he, I mean, he is, he is imagining almost his inaugurational parade around the court square, and then his number one enemy, it flips on him, right? It is a slap in the face. And you talk about not only is now Mordecai being finally honored for what he did, but truth is being revealed. Motives are being revealed. Words that were used are coming to light. It is, it's payback time. It's really payday, not even payback, because they are reaping what they sowed with their words. And then we see Haman's revealed in verse 11. So Haman took the robes, and I can't imagine he's faced while he's doing this, and the horse, he dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, and he was proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and his head covered. And Haman took his wife Zeresh and all of his friends, everything that had happened, they told them that. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. It's, pay. it's what you're, you're about to sow, what you've been reaping. And they actually like, left him. They were like, we're, we're out of here. And then we learned like last week at the end of, of chapter seven that Haman is killed, right? He actually is hung on the gallows that he prepared. And an ultimate twist of fate, Esther 7, 9 and 10 says, then uh, Harbana, one of the eunuchs and attendants of the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that so they hanged Haman and the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. It's, a, it's just a simple story of when you head down a pathway that leads toward destruction, guess what you're going to end up at? Destruction. If you 
plant seeds with your words that lead toward destruction, toward offensiveness, and toward self, uh, just self-promotion, it's going to lead in a difficult direction. If you start using words that are honoring toward other people, provoking people to good, that have pure and intent, you're going to be led around the city square on a horse in king's, in king's robes. That's where these naturally lead, right? And the key thought I want us to hold on to today is simply this. If we use words intending to harm others, it will ultimately bring destruction into my life, while words intending to encourage others will ultimately bring strength into my life. It may still destroy other people, but, but what you sow, you will reap with your words. And not only toward other people, I want you to hear this this morning, we can do this in our own lives, toward ourselves, right? We can be self-destructive with our words to ourselves. We, we, can, we can have ill intent and offensive natures for our own lives. And when we start, that's like a double poison that we take. We're putting it out, but we're putting it out to ourselves. We're ingesting it, and it's affecting us. And so words intending to harm others will ultimately bring destruction into my life, while words intending to encourage others will ultimately bring strength into my life. The Bible is filled with axioms about the power of your words and how they impact both yourself and the person you speak them to. Just listen to some of these. They're not going to be up here. Just remind, Proverbs 18, 21, where we started. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 13, 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Proverbs eighteen nineteen: a brother who has been insulted is harder to win back than a walled city. And arguments separate people like a barred gate of a palace. Proverbs ten twenty: the words of a good person are like pure silver, but an evil person's thoughts are worth very little. Proverbs 26, 20, without wood, a fire will go out, and without gossip, quarreling will stop. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessings, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Proverbs 16, 24, kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Matthew 12, 20, 36, 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Colossians 3, 8, but now you must put all these away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And finally, James 1, 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. How, how of these, when you hear these, I'm sure some of them, when, even when I was just rereading them to myself, some of them jumped out to me. How has, how have these truths impacted you? Maybe you've quarreled with a brother or sister, spouse, friend, and it's created such a divide between you. And, and it's talked about it. It's harder sometimes. An insulted, somebody that you insult is hard to repair. Or what about words that have been like honey to you, that are just spoken to you, and it is just like soothing and sweet, satisfying? Or, or what about 
when you've been able to not keep a bridle on your tongue and you in your own life have just felt like you're a fire hydrant of words and it's just coming out and you can't have any control over it. These impact our lives. These are true axioms. I mean, that's what an axiom is, a truth. You know, it, it's something we can hold on to. It's handles in our life. And so it brings me to this question, how do we make sure our words are better? How do we do this? How do we move from sowing seeds of destruction, words of destruction, and, and words of offensiveness to words of, that protect, words that provoke to good, and words that are pure? And I, I think the Bible is clear on this. And, and what I want to do, there, there's a passage that Katie read earlier out of Matthew 15 that I want us to end focusing our time on. And it simply says this, and it's, this is one of those really challenging passages which says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. That, that's, not, that's not good news, right? It's like your heart's probably not good is what he's saying. Your heart left to yourself is not good. So what comes out of the heart is what eventually proceeds out of the mouth, and it defiles a person. For out of the heart come these things, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. Now, when I read that, I'm like, wow, that's a, that's a crazy list to attach to words that come out of my mouth. Adultery, right? Evil thoughts, murder. What, what is all this? Sexual immorality, theft, false witness. No, I'm just... I'm just talking bad about somebody. I'm just stirring up a little trouble here. And, and Matthew and Jesus, it's, it's very clear that they're saying, no, hold on. Your words have impact. They carry weight. They carry influence in your life and in others' lives. In our natural hearts, I want you to hear this, our natural hearts will lead us down horrible paths. I've walked them. You've walked them. We look back with regret sometimes at the way our hearts have caused us to use words that have brought pain into people's lives, that eventually brought destruction to our lives and led us down paths we never wanted to go down. We've been recipients of those words. We've experienced those words in our own life. People have said things to us as our natural hearts take us down horrible paths. But a heart submitted to Christ doesn't just change our hearts. It ultimately changes our desires and the words that we use and how we use those to guide down paths. So what I want to do is I want to take each of these right quick. This idea of evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. And I want to give you a word to fight against that in our, in our hearts. To renew our hearts. To, to take away those rebellious hearts and put it into a submitted heart that allows good to start to flow. Not, not thoughts that will defile us but words that then will define who we are as followers of Christ and people of peace and people of mercy and people of grace in this culture. So evil thoughts, that word actually means diseased thoughts. And these are bad words that come from a diseased heart that is full of evil thoughts. We can't believe, here's what happens. We stop believing good about other people. It becomes the soil for all kinds of evil to grow. And so it's why when we start talking about people, all we, when we allow evil, evil thoughts to, to own us, we start using words that just tear down people, right? That are always going to tear down. I'm bad. You're bad. You're bad. We're all bad. So I'm not going to say anything good about you. I'm just going to say bad, evil thoughts. But there's a word I want you to hear. 
And that word is, you are new. If you are, if you are a follower of Christ, you have been made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, he is a new creation. This old, evil, diseased heart has passed away. And behold, the new has come. If you get caught up, and all you can think about is the bad and the evil, and why that's bad about this person and bad about this person and bad about me and bad about you, I want you to remember, you're new. You are new. Christ makes us new. And then we jump from evil thoughts to murder. <laughs> I'm like, that's, that's quite a step there, you know, that we jump. But, but when I think about murder here, it's not just going out and committing the actual attack, you know, a, a act of murder, but it's, it's when evil words become unchecked and whether intentionally or unintentionally, bring harm into our lives. And, and we've, while we feel dead in our sins, we like to bring that death into other people's lives. You don't, if you're not enjoying life, you don't want anybody else to enjoy life either. And so you use words that bring people into your despair, into your death, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And we often feel that way because I think we forget another word that God has described for you and I. It is that you are worthy. You are worthy. Not are you just new, but you're worthy. First Peter 2.9, listen to this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You are worthy. You're chosen. You're royalty. You're a holy nation. God's special possession. And when we start to think like that, we don't want to murder people with our words. We start wanting to add worth, add life to people with our words. And then it goes to adultery. And adultery here is, you know, it's never being satisfied. It's a heart that is never satisfied. No matter how much you have, what you, when you feel like you've squeezed all the love out of this, you go to try to find something else to squeeze love out of. And we're always longing, always needing something that we don't have. And my words will only convey my desires, my longings, my primary needs. It's about me. That's ultimately what adultery is. And what I want you to hear this morning, the word I want you to remember is this. In the midst of that, when we start using words like that, is you are loved. You're loved. Not just worthy, not just new, worthy, but you are loved. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, any height or depth, anything in all of creation, anything will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot be separated from that love. No matter how far you fall, how high you get, how distant you feel, you cannot be separated from it. It's too much. His love is overwhelming, and it's everywhere. And when we forget that, and we start to act like we aren't loved enough, and I need you and other people and things to fulfill my love tank, and it just keeps being used up, and i got to fill it up more and more, and I'm adulterating myself by whatever I can get, then, then my words become that way, and I start using words to tear people down, to, to manipulate people, to get them to be who I want them to be and to do for me what I want them to do because we've forgotten that we're loved. We're loved. And then he turns to sexual immorality. 
And I think it's interesting here that he's talking about words that go out of our mouth and then equates that that comes out from sexual immorality because ultimately what sexual immorality is, it's a constant search for pleasure and fulfillment. And it shows a heart that is lacking in contentment. That is lacking in contentment. Always feels lacking. So this will cause me to view people as objects of pleasure and to use words to, to motivate and maximize their physical desires that I want and minimize who they truly are personally. I start viewing them as objects instead of people. And it's not just the sexual nature of it. it is, I think the way he frames the sexual immorality here is it's with control. It's about controlling people for your own desires. Again, they become an object for your enjoyment instead of a person to be loved and to have companionship with. And you know why we do this? I think because we forget another word that God has called us. And it's this, that you're already blessed. You're blessed. You are blessed. Philippians 4.19, I love this. It's just a simple verse. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory of Christ Jesus. Every need. You are blessed. Whatever the longing you're for right now, wherever you're lacking contentment, there is, a, there is an un, ex, unextinguishable, exhaustible wealth of riches to pour into your life from our God who is ready to meet those longings if we go to the right place instead of using our words and our hearts and our desires to manipulate people and to turn people into objects. I, I, you can look around this room, you can look around this city, you can look around this world, Whatever you see, whoever you see on TV, whatever brings you visual, beautiful stimulation, and not just people, maybe it's things, whatever you feel like, I got to have that to be blessed. I want you to hear that is an empty, it's going to empty itself eventually. It's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. God's love, God's newness in your life, God's blessings never end, never end. Lamentations, his mercies are new every day. And then it goes from sexual immorality to another word, which is theft, right? I mean, this sounds like, these, you know, it's basically going against all the Ten Commandments. That's where negative words leads us. And here's what theft is. It's when our hearts grow angry when we see someone with something that we want that seems to have been, they, that they seem to have been blessed more than me, that they got something maybe they didn't deserve. And my words start to steal from what their character they still and start to diminish their diligence and their hard work. They say, that person doesn't deserve this. They didn't put in the same work I did. And we start to th- steal their character. Our words minimize them and maximize us. And I, I mean, how many times has this happened at work? How many times has this happened in a marriage? Where we go, I'm putting in more than this person. And we start to minimize them and maximize us. And we start to steal their character from them. And the word I want you to hear, because when you start to steal something, it means you're lacking. And I want you to hear this morning, you are complete. You're complete. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to says, My grace, God's grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness, in insults, and in hardships, and persecution, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Then I am completed because of Christ's power in me. Not because I've 
diminishing somebody else. I don't have to steal from somebody else to bring them down to my level so that then we feel complete here. I have to understand, I'm not comparing myself to them. God is filling me. God has given me everything I need. I am complete. I'm complete. And then it says, the last two, we, we start to bear false witness. And this is where words really begin to show up, right? Talking about false witnesses. When my heart start to fill with lies and ways to sabotage others. My words planted in deceit begin to erode the reputation of others and even begin to erode my character as well when people realize all I'm doing is constantly bearing false witness against other people. You know these people. We've probably been them at some point too. Where all you do when you're around, you're angry, you're not feeling complete, blessed, any of these things, you have lost sight of all this, and your words are constantly just bearing false witness against other people. Lies and deceit. You're taking something they did and adding a little bit to it just to twist it to make them look in a bad light and you in a better light. You're giving false witness. And you're, you're destroying their character. Eroding away. But people, it's eroding your character too because people can see this. People can see when you do this. And here's why we do this because I think, again, we forget another word. And it's this, that you are forgiven. You're forgiven. And, and this passage out of Luke is so challenging. It says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. These, these flow back and forth. If you want to have condemnation flow into your life, guess what? Start condemning other people. If you want judgment to flow into your life, start judging other people. But if you want forgiveness and healing to flow in your life, start forgiving other people. Start actually let that flow. Stop bearing false witness against people and instead start forgiving people and forgiving yourself. And lastly, it says it ends in slander. Slander, these words, this is what defiles our heart. When all of these more subversive attacks don't work, then I put on a full frontal attack. My words are used to directly attack someone and inflict as much harm as possible. To minimize their strengths, I use, them to, I use words to minimize their strengths and to take advantage of their weaknesses. We stop seeing them as a person and our words are like hand grenades dropped into our lives that are often based on our own insecurities and our perceived weaknesses instead of reality. And we just, it's bomb, bomb. That's what slander is. I'm going to say something bad about you. I'm not just going to say something bad about you. I'm going to say something bad about you that I know is going to inflict pain in your life. I'm going to find the weakness that I know best about you, and I'm going to jab it just a little bit. That's slander. And why do we do this? All the other things that we have forgotten, but I think there's another huge word. And we forget that we are known. You're completely known. You don't have to destroy somebody else to make yourself more known because God already completely knows you. Good and bad. Strengths and weaknesses. This passage out of Psalms, such a great reminder for you created me, my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You're known. Can you, can you hold on to these words this morning? Let these words not, not like the pathway of Haman, who used words to destroy, build up himself, offensive intent, but instead words that are pure in heart. Hear these words that are pure, that will provoke you to good, like Mordecai's words did, that will protect you. You're new, you're worthy, you're loved, you're blessed, you're complete, you're forgiven, and you are known. My question for you today is this. Is your heart saturated in the words of our Lord that we just talked about? If your heart becomes saturated in those words, you know what's going to happen to your heart? It's going to soften. As it softens, the other words of God will take root in your heart, begin to grow and bear fruit, fruits of compassion and mercy and hope and joy that have been put to death because we have cut these words out of our life? Or is your heart being saturated in the words of our Lord? We bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning. Just hear these words one more time. Let them sit in your mind and on your heart. God says you are new. The old has passed away. You are new. God says you are worthy. You're chosen. You're a special possession. God says you are loved. There is nothing that can separate you from that love. God says you're blessed. That he will supply every need according to his riches. God says you're complete. You are complete there's even in your weakness you are made strong because of him you're forgiven you are forgiven don't judge don't condemn instead forgive and remember ultimately you are known you're known there's nothing hidden about you or your nature your history or your future from God you're known let these words be the words that define the words we speak to one another and even to our own selves God we are so grateful that you have spoken these words to us words that we can hold on to words that we can saturate our hearts in and allow your truth to bring fruit and flower and joy into our life. God, words that bring healing into, into our own lives and our own hearts and minds. And words that can bring healing into relationships that seem broken beyond repair. God, these are words that can bring healing into our world. Into moments of injustice that we don't know what to do with. These words can bring healing even when we don't know what to do, what to say. God, your words to us, let that be what defines us 
from this moment forward.